I'm Peyton, and this is The Rhizomatic Reader. You are listening to my unedited conversation with Andre Hebert about Andrew Sean Greer's novel, Less. You can find an edited version of this conversation on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play. Okay. So I'm so glad that you're here and I'm really excited to talk to you finally about this book that you've selected and about reading. Um, I did send you this morning, uh, maybe you got it. Uh, I just sent it maybe about an hour ago, um, just a link to a document where the quotes that you pulled and the quotes that I pulled and some other things uh, that might come up uh, in the conversation are listed. But, uh, you know, this is very free flowing. We just talk, see where the conversation goes. I never know what's going to happen. And that's the best way for it to go. So, um, you know, thanks for coming on and giving me a great book to read and think about. I'm excited. Um, before we dive into that, though, I, I sent you some hello, kitty. Um, I sent you um, a question, and this is kind of the question that I start all my conversations off with, which is to talk to me about how you think about the history of your reading life. Yeah, you know, as I was thinking about this, I remember that there were two distinct parts in my life where the idea of reading really changed for me. You know, at the beginning, growing up, my parents never really gave me books to read. Mm -hmm. Um, It was always toys or (laughs) mail or um, household items that I could just like play with. And in school, everything that required reading was just that. It was required. And it left a really nasty taste in my mouth because, you know, I never considered myself a really smart kid. Mm -hmm. Um, I was always comparing myself to others that are in my grade. I, and, and, and it seemed as though they were always reading much better than I was. Mm-hmm. You know, we would, we would take these standardized tests that would place us at a reading level. Mm-hmm. And as I was always on track or on my, my reading, the reading level equal to the grade level that I was in, there were always others that were being praised for being above that. Mm-hmm. And so reading to me was as it was an experiment or an, an experience quite literally required of me. And I just didn't like that. Mm-hmm. I never, I never was able to kind of like let go and just like dive in. And then I, I would say, I mean, honestly, it wasn't until after grad school. I mean, this is really that, that late. Yeah, this is like 2016. And, you know, I think going to college, I appreciated literature because I learned that literature 
had a really big part in civilization, socialization, being a sociology major, I had to understand and enjoy reading to an extent because I was studying social sciences. And so I, I knew that it was important, but I still never liked it. Mm-hmm. You know, I still never enjoyed it. I just, I did it because it was, it was what was, like I said, required of me. Grad school, same. I, you know, I love the topics of what I was learning and reading, but again, I was reading these immensely scholarly articles that were that were using big language and concepts that I couldn't wrap my head around at that time. And then I was having these really deep intellectual conversations with my peers, again, comparing myself to my peers that were able to meet people at that level. And I was like, I don't, that's just, that's just not how I come to this world. Um, so it was after grad school, 2016, I was sitting in my living room and I had collected all of these books. Like I have, I, I mean, that's one built-in bookshelf in my home. I have two of them. And then every container, I have books galore. Um, and it wasn't until after grad school that I finally was like, I have nothing to do. I have no required reading. Let's just like pop it, open a book and see where it takes me. And I was able to quite literally escape reality. Mm. I was able to close the book when I wanted, open the book when I wanted. I was able to stop after a paragraph because it hurt me or I didn't understand it. Mm. I was able to read chapters again and again. I was able to scream. I was literally able to experience a book like I've never experienced a book before. And, and I think that's when it changed for me. That's whenever I was like, this is, you know, this is something that I could get behind. It is this experience that I enjoy about reading um, that I want to, I want to latch onto. And so it was after that, that I tried to find books that would give me that same experience. Mm -hmm. Um, or that same feeling. And then it evolved as I got interested in politics, as I got interested in queer literature, as I got interested in these taboo topics or um, uh, memoirs, autobiographies. I started finding people fascinating. I started seeing links and errors of, um, you know, these people wrote in this century, these people wrote in this decade. Um, and I was able to make those really good connections. And that, I mean, it really kind of just blew up from there. Um, and I, I think that's how I've come to understand or think about my, my, my history with, with books and reading. Something now, that is quite fresh. Yeah. Well, you told me that when you left grad school, you had curated all of these books or you had all these books. So where did that come from? That was something you started after grad school or you just were in a book buying habit, but never reading the books? Yeah. So growing up, I was always the one to play teacher. Mm -hmm. I was always collecting textbooks and regular books as if I was playing with stuffed animals and I would require them to read because that's what we had to do. Um, And I liked books. Like I liked physical books. They were cool. 
And some books I was like, oh, this seems exciting. And some books that I read in middle school were maybe enticing enough for me to be like, oh, yay, books are cool. And I've always been a nerd. And so people always thought that I wanted books, um, which to some extent I did um, because I just liked them aesthetically. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I just collected books. Like I I remember one time my sister was throwing out a box of books that she just didn't want anymore. And I took all of them and I was like, I'm not going to read them, but I just can't see you throwing them away. Yeah. And that was in high school. Yeah. And so I just collected all of these books. I still, I literally just collect them. I still have books that I've never touched that I got in high school and middle school. Do you, do you find yourself going to bookstores or buying books online quite a bit or that's not so much something you do? Right now, I would say no, um, because I, I try to stay away from Barnes and Noble as much as possible because we have some really amazing local bookstores here. Yeah, there's a new one in New Orleans called Baldwin and Company. You need to check it out. Yes, yes. So, you know, like Baldwin and Company just opened months ago. Yes. And um, it, it's, a, it's a really great place supporting black and brown people. It's like really amazing. But I'm just not at a place financially where I can go and just get books just to get books. Although th- I would love that. Mm-hmm. So usually I get books whenever like people are moving, like my friend Steven just moved and he sent a picture of his bookshelf to people. And he said, I'm getting rid of all these books. Does anybody want them? And I was like, I will take 10 of them. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I collect my books is from free, is from people who are just giving away books. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they're amazing books. So um, when this, you know, sort of self-taught, self-discovery of reading postgraduate school started. Do you remember the book that kind of kicked that off? Or do you remember some of the titles of things that you were reading at that time that helped you to come to a new understanding and appreciation of reading? Yes. Yeah. I'm looking at them right now. Um, The Silent Wife, Mm -hmm. Looking for Alaska, Hmm. The Three Fifty Shades of Grey book, (laughs) The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell, Mm -hmm. Ooh, The Wedding by Nicholas Sparks. Yeah, I'll stop there. Ooh, okay. No, one more. Where is it? It's a Jillian Flynn book. Gone Girl. Lord, take my soul. Gone Girl. Fucked me up. Why is that book so important? Oh, my God. I've never read it. You've never read it, y'all. Gone Girl by Jillian Flynn. There are three parts to this book. Um, the first part of the book is, um, wow. Okay. I'm not, I'm really bad at spoiling books. So here no, we are. It's fine. I mean, this, this podcast, we tell people they're spoilers. Like you just have okay, to Okay, great. Um, so Gone Girl starts with a 
husband going to work, normal day, and coming to find out that his wife has gone missing mm-hmm. um, out of the blue, like goes home, doors open, wife's not there. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden he gets these like clues as to maybe where she is or what's happening um, or that she's just dead or something. Mm-hmm. And then part one ends and, and you're like, ha, huh, wow, this book is going to go one way. I, I like, I already see it. It's just going to end this way. The first page of part two is told through the wife's eyes mm. and she's not dead. She mm-hmm. orchestrated the whole thing mm-hmm. of her going missing. Mm-hmm. Um, so much so that she had been thinking about this for years and she had been building all of these experiences and, um, oh, I don't want to give that away. Like she's been just building up until this point. Um, and she's just psychotic. You know, she did this so that her husband would realize that he is just so madly in love with her. Um, and she goes to different people's houses. She run, you know, she's trying to run away. So, you know, people don't find her. And then part three is her coming back and being like, I'm alive. Oh, please help me. I've been beat up. Oh my God, what is happening? And the husband and the wife know that one another know what's happening. And so they're trying to navigate this, like, I know what you did. I know what you're doing, but she's like, I'm going to have your baby. They're never going to believe you. I'm going to kill you if, if you ever say something. And it it is just such a whirlwind. And I read that and I was like, I, I'm at a loss. I am at a loss, Jillian Flynn. And then I read dark places by her. um, And that was. That also came out as in a movie, I think. Um, and it was a good show too. Yeah, Dark Places by Jillian Flynn. Yeah, so Jillian Flynn, I mean, she has become one of my favorite writers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So how did you come to find less? And why less- is this? why is this the book that you chose when I said, pick a book that you want to talk about with me. Less was given to me by my dear friend, Rachel, who is also a colleague of mine. I think she's a little bit more into books than I am. And I was reading during the pandemic and I was telling her, you know, what I was reading, I was reading multiple books at the time and I was just kind of going through them. And she said, oh, I have some books that I think I'd like to recommend to you if mm-hmm. you're open to that. Mm-hmm. And I said, absolutely. And Les was a part of that um, book grouping that she gave to me. Mm-hmm. And I, I looked at it and I was like, this seems, you know, silly. You know what? It's a, it's a cartoon drawing of a man falling as he's writing. He, you know okay, what is this? It looks pretty, it it looks pretty queer to me. Um, And she told me that it was a really easy read. Um, If I'm into romance and emotions that I would probably enjoy it. 
Um, she said it, you know, this it's, it's, it's about a journey. This guy goes on a journey and I was like, all right, you know, I'm not doing anything with my time. So I might as well just dive in. And so that's how it came on my lap. And usually some of the best books that I've read quite literally just are, were handed to me, yes. you know, the, um, gone girl was just, was given to me. I forgot by who, but it was just given to me. And after I read it, I was like, where has this been on my life? Mm-hmm. Um, the Midnight Library, I just finished. Oh, Matt Hagg's book. Yeah. It was given to me by my friend, Stephen. He was like, I, I'm, not, I'm um, t- you know, my husband read it. He said it was good. I never even told him that I wanted it. He just gave it to me. And after I read it, I was like, this is a great book. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so many things, so many books have been given to me. Uh, what if, mm, what if it's us is another young adult queer book, mm-hmm. um, again, given to me by Rachel and I read it and I was like, wow, you know, it, I mean, it's very cute, very quirky, uh, nothing really, um, high level there. And so less, I, I popped open less and I read it and I read it during a pandemic. So I had nothing better to do than just to sit on my porch and read. Um, And then I quickly resonated with so much of this um, unconventional relationship Um, or yeah, I'm going to stick with that. Yeah, I, I resonated with it. And I was like, wow, this is not, this is not talked about at all, at least in spaces that I occupy mm-hmm. uh, with other, other gay men. Mm-hmm. What, what do you, wh- which part is not talked about specifically? The, the success of a short-term uh, limit placed relationship, the age gap, uh, in a relationship. Yes. Um, hmm, so I want to say also hooking up, but I think hooking up is very much talked about, but I think the nuances of what a hookup comes with are the, the, the communication that is needed if you're going to have a consistent hookup, it's not really talked about that much. You see, mm-hmm. it's like, um, you know, we're going to do this for a little bit. Someone's going to get hurt at the end. And here we are. Mm-hmm. Um, or it's this idea of, and I, I don't think this was talked about um, specifically in this book, but this idea of ethical non-monogamy um, of, of, I can still be deeply invested in a relationship with you and others mm. and, that what, and, and whatever capacity we can define that or whatever, you know, makes sense for us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, conceptually, I, I understand that, right? Because as I've come to terms with my sexuality as I've come to terms with sexual sexuality and gender and romance and emotional connection, like I, I understand and I'm a firm believer that all of those things are different and they have a different scale that one person can kind of just slide through in their parts of life. 
And so conceptually or intellectually, I can be like, all oh, right, yeah, I can, I can understand this. But to see it written or to see it talked about is usually not common. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's usually I'm a man, I might identify as gay, therefore everything about me and how I find pleasure is going to be with a man. Mm-hmm. Um, and then adding some identities to the mix causes society to prescribe what that experience is going to look like for you. Mm-hmm. You know, depending on how old I am, well, I can only be with this certain aged man. I can mm-hmm. only be with uh, this race or ethnicity because of who I identify as or where I live um, or what I'm interested in or what type of work I do. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's always been kind of fascinating to me as I've moved around and gotten to know different types of people and really complicated my understanding of, well, what the hell do I want? (laughs) Well, that's one of the things that I wrote in my sort of pseudo notes that I take about why a book does or does not resonate with me. I mean, for me, this book was so interesting in the sense that I felt like Les's character was somebody that I could really relate to as a middle-aged gay man and specifically this kind of I think he's like a very confused person and doesn't really know what it is that he's trying to accomplish in his career. He doesn't have a lot of understanding of what he wants to do in terms of his love life. Um, You know, he sort of vacillates back and forth between, you know, this thing with Freddie, which then ends, and then these kind of like random encounters with people he also had this kind of relationship with this Robert Brayburn character that ended um and I just I just thought that the way that Greer wrote about this was impactful also for what you said about the way that people move through different phases of their lives and especially as a gay man I think that so much of what is problematic about gay culture in terms of popular culture, literature, film, all of this kind of stuff is that it hyper-focuses on young gay life, Mm. hookup culture, parties, parades, you know, all, all of the fun stuff about being young and gay. This book is like trying to deal with with the real issues that you have to deal with in your day-to-day life as you try to figure out your career and also who you want to be with or how you mm-hmm. want to be with those people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that it was a point that I made aware for myself in the book when he said that upon this journey that he was taking, it was going to be his 50th birthday. Yes. And I was like, all right, this situates this book for me in a different light than if I would have approached this someone that was in his twenties. 
And to some extent, I don't really care about age, but I do think that age plays a part in relationships and how you've come to uh, define yourself and how you define stability within your life. You know, I do think that throughout time, um, some things are less important to you and some things are more important to you. Um, And I think that it was really enlightening to know that, okay, I'm, you know, this, this main character is, is quite literally midlife, you know, has gone through quite a lot of experiences that I think he does a good job um, shining light on. Um, And just to know that Freddie was younger, you know, a friend's son, you know, how, how we, how we know about Freddie. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was interesting because in some, in, in some of my, in some part of my mind, I'm like, if I would get together and I'm, I'm about to be 30, so caveat there, but if I were to get with someone's son, um, I feel like I would be looked down upon. Um, and I think that that is from where I was raised. Um, and this idea of who you have to be in a relationship with. Um, or if I were to get together with someone to my senior, you know, 15 years or so. And I never really know, I don't know if you know this, but I never really know the age gap between Freddie and Les. Um, But there being an age gap in general made me in some part of my brain throw up a yellow flag. Whenever I know, and I know people and I myself have dated outside of my age. And so it was just really enlightening for me to go through that journey of like, this is, this is what a successful relationship can look like. Um, and it doesn't, I'm going to say it doesn't matter the age of the person. Also acknowledging that it's important to know less his age because of where he is going through in his life in the book. I don't know if that made sense. No, it makes sense. I mean, actually, the the age gap thing is another reason why this book is so resonant with me. I mean, I am dating slash in a partnership with, let's not say dating, I'm, you know, my partner is significantly younger than me. I mean, I am 41. He is 28. You know, we are separated by 13 14 years of time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it's been intriguing to have that experience of navigating the age gap, which at the front end of our relationship really caused, I would say, at times some tension, because we were in two different places in terms of our sort of lived experience and what we really needed and wanted from the relationship. Like I'm at a place in my life where I very much am uh, not, you know, I'm, I was career focused. I'm, you know, 
established in my life. I have patterns and habits. Um, you know, he's still in his late twenties clubbing and wanting to go and do, you know, party things and stuff like that. Then the pandemic hit. And I think the pandemic has totally shifted the way that our relationship works because, you know, we, we have each other. That's it. Like mm-hmm. you, you don't, you, you can't really be around anybody else. So, you know, in the book, there are these multiple levels of exploring the age gap in queer relationships first when Les is a much younger man and dates Robert. Yep. And then that situation dissolves and then he becomes the older person and he ends up dating Freddie. And then, you know, I think there's this real uh, stress induced tension that is part of what I find compelling about Les's character development is that he after Freddie leaves after they part ways I felt like Les had a tremendous amount of guilt about letting him leave there's this line in the book you know where he says why didn't I say yes when Freddie asked me do you want me to stay with you forever and you know, it speaks also, I think, of this kind of generational gap where I don't know if this will resonate with you as, you know, another queer identified man, but there, there really is in our society, I think, a huge generational gap in understandings of queer relationships between people of my generation and people of your generation. And what I mean by that is I grew up in a time when the idea of being able to have a queer relationship that would be lasting and even recognized by the state or the society was just not a reality. So, so much of our relationship thinking growing up was about this idea of just these kind of short interminable or yeah, short interminable relationships that won't last And there's no reason for them to last because you can't even be in a committed partnership because the government won't recognize it if you believe in that, or it just wasn't something that was going on. Now, I, you know, I think that young people, and I'll use my partner as an example, you know, my partner very much like grew up in a world where, you know, being in a strong, stable, queer relationship was just like expected and the norm. And I think that Les wrestles with that in the book to a certain extent. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I, I feel that on such a, on such a deep level, I also think that so many things go into that sort of socialized belief or thinking, you know, it was, you know, 60 years ago, you know, there wasn't much mainstream anything that was like gay relationship 
so much so that being gay was a disease. Yeah, it was it was quite literally in a manual of of illness. And now, and I would say that I have felt this to an extent, but now, I mean, even my nieces and nephews are grappling with their own sexual identity at such a young age because it is around to them in such a more robust way, Mm -hmm. right? They see it on bulletin uh, billboards, they see it in commercials, they see it in activism on campus. They see it in, for better or for worse, political conversations. Mm-hmm. They see their parents talking about it more. And so as it becomes more knowing, the younger and younger generations deal with it a little, I would say, much sooner than maybe I dealt with it. Mm-hmm. Even though I I I dealt with it pretty pretty early on, mm-hmm. you know. So I think that I I think that that absolutely resonates with me, and I think that less to some extent is dealing with that. Um, and I think there's something to be said about which Greer doesn't really talk much about of Les's understanding of relationships or kind of desires of what a relationship our partnership is defined by him. You know, he is very career focused um, and he was with someone that was absolutely career focused as well. Yes. yes. And Freddie is not career focused or was not career focused besides, I, I, oh, I, well, I do don't you know think if that's I want to take true? That. Do you think yeah. that's true? Maybe not because um, I go back to this like lazy quote that uh, Freddie was dealing with, but you know, he was a teacher Um, And I think that he was absolutely focused on his career and where he was going. Um, But I think that for Les, definitely career focused. Um, And I think that he saw a lot of his personal life bleed into these career focused experiences. Um, And I think that that was messing with him throughout the book. You know, he would go to this place, you know, meet a guy, and then immediately have a memory of Freddie um, or go teach some, some lessons on writing or literature, but in the after effect, be thinking about his friends or Freddie. And so I think that throughout the book, you see him do, do this journey. I mean, and the journey in and of itself was to avoid going to a wedding. Hey, Freddie's, Freddie's wedding. wedding. Right. right. This is the so, point, right? It's like, this is, you know, he is actually running away yeah. from his feelings is one of the, is one of the ways that the book is framed. Mm-hmm. He can't deal with the tension around the fact. And this is why I said, I, I feel like he's so conflicted about the decision he made with Freddie because he can't deal with the fact that Freddie has moved on and is getting married to another man. And so rather than deal with that, he decides to go and do all of these extravagant things around the world that are both kind of focused on his career, but also 
sort of focused on this midlife crisis around his 50th birthday. I mean, you know, deciding to go to Morocco for your 50th birthday and ride a camel across the Sahara Desert seems like a very conflicted hot sort of decision-making process, <laughs> you know? <laughs> hot. Hot and cold. I mean, the desert gets cold in the evening. Well, I also found it really, yes, yes, yes. I mean that, yes, I, I agree. And I, something that I found interesting, just as I was looking, skimming through the book recently, that he had friends in some of these places Yes. And I think that he had met Carlos, Freddie's, you know, guardian. Um, and which is also fascinating about queer relationships in general, right? Like Les and Carlos are like friends, but like arch nemesis. It's very, mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, sure. I see. I yeah, got it. And, you know, Carlos was at a place that Les was traveling to. And I'm like, well, the stars are aligned if I ever guess them myself, you know, and then this idea of or this concept of the, you know, the queer social circle, I think it's pretty small. Um, And to have it on a global level like that Hmm. and then have their friends in across the world know about this wedding that did not happen, that happened, but something of a scandal happened, you know, to have them know about that, I think what in um, Paris, uh, whenever uh, Les was meeting up with uh, someone else, you know, so I thought that was pretty comical to me of like, you know, no matter where you go, going back to this like running away thing, like it always came back to him. Which I think you sort of know from the beginning, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the you, and it's kind of a trope in literature anyway, that anyone who's trying to run away from a problem, that problem is always going to catch up with them. He just, you know, Les just can't seem to, I don't know. I just, I, I felt like he wanted to, say something to Freddie or, you know, and there's even this like vivid scene toward the front end of the book where he's like imagining Freddie's wedding and he like can't handle it. Like he has like a, almost like an emotional breakdown, like thinking about this uh, situation with Freddie and whatever his soon to be husband's, you know, name is. But, you know, I I also want to talk about like that. and this, this is a, a plot spoiler for people who are listening that haven't read the book, but that's just the way things go. There, there's also commentary here, and I don't know how you feel about it, around the fact that this man that Freddie marries, what is his name? I think it's Tom or Todd. Tom or Todd or something like that, right. I mean, he's not a main character in the book. He just comes up because of Freddie's. But... It's very interesting to me that he realizes on their, you know, wedding night in Tahiti 
that Freddie uh-huh. does not want to be married to him and uh-huh. decides to just like let him go. And I just, I don't know, Andre. Like, I don't think that it's that easy. And I know that that's not a main character in the book, but it's just one thing that I thought, you know, is when you read books, you try to think about like, could I do that? And I was just thinking like, if I had gone through the process of being in a relationship with someone and then getting married to them, could I truly on my wedding night realize that that person is unhappy and set them free so they could go and be happy? knowing that it's going to bring pain and misery to your own existence. And I just don't know. I don't know that I could do it. I am really trying to find the quote here um, of when Tom, it, it really is a very, very emotionally intelligent conversation that Tom and Freddie have in that bed in Tahiti. You know, Freddie is crying. Tom is awoken. And I think like the quote is literally, I wish you weren't crying right now. Yeah. It's something like that. Right. And, you know, a part of me is like, Tom knew every, I feel like everyone knew. Of course, everyone knew. Everyone knew. It was no, it was not a kept secret. Unbeknownst to them, maybe. Mm -hmm. But it was not a kept secret that Freddie was with Les almost every weekend for a while. And so I, a part of me is like, Tom, Tom knew, right? And I think Tom came to terms with I'm probably marrying someone that obviously was in love with someone else, um, but is choosing to be with me Mm. for whatever that means. Um, I also think that I, I agree that what, how would this play out in reality? Yeah. And, and a part of that book too was Tom and Freddie in the middle of the night had that conversation and Tom left the room, Yeah, you know, and left Freddie to be there and be with himself. Yeah. And I'm like, that is, that is, uh, that is very, that's very brave of you. That is very intelligent, like emotionally intelligent of, of understanding that, you know, out of all of this, out of all of life, no one is ever perfect. Um, and something, you know, things are, things are not permanent. Mm. Well, I think that that gets into something that you, is this something that you put down? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I don't know if you want to go here, but I, I like to get into some of these quotes and you know, Oof. you had put down if you're talking, yes, 179 to 184. Reader, if you do nothing, if you do not read this book, at least read pages 179 to 184. 
I, you know, and maybe it's because, um, you know, I, I must start this and I'll start it here because it happens between an interaction between me and you actually. Really? Yes. Um, in Tampa for ACPA, God, whatever 2015, 14, sure. whatever, you were dating someone else. And I was asking you about how your relationship was going. Um, and we hadn't seen each other in a while. Mm -hmm. um, but you had been dating this person since I was in college. Um, when you were in orientation. And you had said something that have that has always stuck with me. And I you said, you know, we're we're doing well. And I think you said something like every year we like touch base to see like a contract. Are yes. we going to renew this contract? Are we not? Mm -hmm. And that that blew my mind. Like mm -hmm. I never even thought about relationships in that way. Mm -hmm. Friendships, maybe. I know, I know that friendships come and go, right? Like I can be friends with someone and the next day I'm like, well, that was a great friendship. Okay, bye. <laughs> but I never gave the same thought around relationships. Mm -hmm. um, but what is a friendship with, a friendship is a relationship, mm -hmm. right? Relationship by any other means but any other definition is just an interaction between one another, you know? Anyway, um, so I, 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 I've always thought about that, of how can, how can I approach a relationship in such a way that um, we, have, we have checkpoints, we have touch points where we never have to feel obligated to perform a certain way. Um, and if it gets to a point where it is no longer working, it is okay to not sign the contract again. Mm -hmm. For whatever reason, there could be something better. I could just be tired of this contract. Mm -hmm. um, or this contract is hurting me. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not, I'm not, I'm not getting what I said I needed out of this contract anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and so I read this, I, I read these 179 through 184 of this understand. And it was beautiful how Les was reacting to this Lewis and Clark situation. Yes. He was, he was freaking out. Right. He, he was, was so like, upset. He was so upset. Right. And I'm like that. I mean, less this, this, this needs to tell you something here, my dear. Um, but also I was freaking out. I was like, Oh my God, 10 years. Or it was 20 years. The, hold on. Well, the first 10 years, they oh, go yeah. back to this place and he's like, well, it's been 10 years. And the guy's like, are you fucking serious? And he's like, no, I want to <laughs> stay with you. I'll do another 10 years. And he's like, oh, okay, good. And then 10 years later, they go back and it's like, well, what do you think? And the guy's like, Clark, I think is the, the guy who's telling the story. Clark is like, I think we've reached our time. 
Mm-hmm. And the partner is like, I think so too. Mm-hmm. And that even saying that Paul, like mm. does something to me internally. You well, know? and, and, you know, what I love about that scene. Yes. I mean, it's so powerful in terms of the reason we started this was you said nothing is permanent. I mean, that may or may not be true. That's certainly mm-hmm. a trope of the book, a theme mm-hmm. of the book, but you know, the way that Clark is talking about it, it's Clark that's talking about it or Lewis? I think so. I think it's Clark. I think it's Clark. Yeah. You know, and I put, you know, I pulled this specific quote out on page 181 because I had highlighted this. So when you sent it to me, I was like, yeah, this resonates with me too. Or maybe it's Lewis. It's Lewis. Yeah. Lewis is talking about his impending divorce from Clark. Right. Yes. And you know, like you said, Les is so upset. He feels like this is the perfect queer relationship. And if that perfect queer relationship can't withstand the test of time, then what the hell hope does do, do the rest of us have, right? Um, it's like the canary in the, in the coal mine, right? If Lewis and Clark can't make it, the rest of us are screwed. Um, but, you know, Lewis says this thing, you know, he says, no, no, Arthur, it's the opposite. I'm saying it's a success. 20 years of joy and support and friendship, that is a success. 20 years of anything with another person is a success. End quote, that's on page 181. And I just, I think that's true of not just like romantic, emotionally involved relationships. I think it's also true of like friendships, like you said, right? Relationships in life are hard. Mm -hmm. They are just challenging. And if you can find people that you can spend that much time with and they can be, you know, they bring joy to your life and they support you and they do all of this other kind of stuff, that's what relationships are about. Relationships aren't really about, you know, sex or, I mean, I say this all the time, like my current uh, partner and I, we, we often have this conversation. Um, you know, I'm like, no, relationships aren't about sex. They're not about like, they're, they're about all this other stuff. They're about like, there's a song out there that I always try to play for him where it, it's something like, you know, love is a Tuesday is the name of the song. And it's the, the, the point of the song is that like, love is really about these like everyday occurrences. Right. You know? Right. And that's one right. of the quotes. That's one of the quotes that I had pulled out um, actually. Um, when, when they're in the desert, uh, when Les is in the desert with Zora and... Um, Yes. And he's like, you know, Zora has been left by Janet, you know, after a long relationship and she's very upset and they're talking about, you know, like what is love and how do you know, do you, is there like a love of your life or can you have multiple loves of your life or something like that? And, you know, Zora says, there's no love of your life. Love isn't terrifying like that. It's walking the fucking dog so the other one can sleep in. It's doing taxes. It's cleaning the bathroom without hard feelings. It's having an ally in life. It's not fire. It's not lightning. I, I just, I loved that. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's, it's really how I think about love. 
Right. And it's real. I think it's not a fantasy. You know, and I think that we've fantasized so much of what love and love at first sight and all of this shit Mm -hmm. that we come to expect. And then when we're not met with that, we're like, well, this is a failure. Um, But I do think that there are points in time. It takes time to realize it. Um, And I think that why this is resonating with me so much is that I'm also dealing with this in my current state. You know, I'm, I'm very open and hungry to an extent for companionship, mm-hmm. you know, for partnership that is um, beyond superficial, really, you know, someone that I can talk about my pets with, you know, someone that is willing to go grocery shopping for me, um, someone that's willing to go grocery shopping with me, yes. someone that's willing to be like, no, we're actually going to do this. You know, someone that's willing to make coffee in my coffee pot whenever we get up in the morning or someone that I can do something for, but not someone that I take on these romantic gestures and big dates. And that costs a lot of money. I'm like, baby ain't got this kind of money, but I do have a lot of love and affection that I'm willing to give and attention and energy. And so I think this is such a powerful, you call it scene, and I really appreciate that, of it really does flip the script a little bit and reminds us that it is so much, it, it, is, it is so much more than what we have thought or been socialized to believe about love and relationships. And I think that it just adds a beauty effect that it's a queer relationship. Um, because already those are so taboo or, well, I mean, not anymore, but I still think to some extent very taboo. Well, and in fact, it goes to the first quote that you pulled out in the book. And this is why I think Freddie and Les do end up coming together by the end of the book is because, in fact, their love is built on this kind of everydayness. Right? right now it now the way that it happens the way that it develops over time is not necessarily traditional but like i would be very interested in you reading that long paragraph of the first quote because this to me is exactly why i think that they end up staying together mm. do you have it yeah page you know 13. what i'm yeah page 13 Mm. Yeah, I'll read it. You know, it was so easy. Freddie found Carlos's house intolerable. And so often after a long Friday teaching and hitting a happy hour with a few of his college friends would show up at Les's, tipsy and eager to crawl into bed for the weekend. The next day would be Les nursing hungover Freddie with coffee and old movies until Les kicked him out on Monday morning. This happened once a month or so when they first began, but grew into a habit until Les found himself disappointed when one Friday evening, the doorbell never rang. How strange to wake up in his warm white sheets 
the sunlight through the trumpet vine and sensed something missing. He told Freddie the next time he saw him that he should not drink so much. R recites such terrible poetry. And here was the key to his house. Freddie said nothing but pocketed the key and used it whenever he liked and never returned it. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, I, I think. And one of the reasons that I chose this as my first quote was that this is the first time that Freddie is introduced to less like this. Mm-hmm. Right. It's the first time that you know as a reader that there's something deeper here. Mm-hmm. And I think that Greer does a really, really fun twist on words of, you know, he told Freddie that the next time he saw him, he should not drink so much. Or such it's terrible poetry. And here was the key to his house. You know, like, don't do this. And I will see you next weekend. Mm. You know, and mm-hmm. I thought that was kind of fun. Um, and Freddie said nothing, but pocketed the key and used it whenever he liked. And then, you know, as you go on, it says, you know, an outsider would say, that's all fine, but the trick is not to fall in love. They would have laughed. They would have both laughed at that. Um, so I, I think that that those couple of pages are really insight, insightful. Yeah, and I um, think, go ahead. Well, I, I was just going to end that with saying as it relates to their relationship and how it evolved over time. But it was routine, right? Like you said, it was routine. It was some sort of normalcy that happened to it. And I would argue that they did it or they began this, this, this seeing each other every weekend or once a month, whatever, as a part of no strings attached. Like there was no, I want to date you. Um, I want to court you in this way. It was very much your place feels safe for me. I just need a place to land. Carlos's place is not cool. I don't like it there. Can I sleep over for the weekend? Yeah, and so and it, it became normal and no strings attached. But little do we know the strings were being sewn very slowly, but but intentionally. Intentionally, yeah. Well, and I think, you know, what resonated for me so much about this in relation to what we were talking about with the comment from Zora and just the fact that, you know, the way that these relationships come is that, you know, actually Freddie and Les's relationship is one that grows out of a kind of like duty of care. Like, I love this line of, you know, Les would nurse a hunt over Freddie with movies and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and then kick him out on Monday morning. And you know, when I was reflecting on what you were saying a little while ago about where you're at in your own personal life and your own personal relationship journey about this idea of wanting companionship, that is just, it is the best thing. And I really stand by the fact that, you know, that is what makes the relationship I'm in now work is that it's companionship. Like when you were saying this stuff about like, I just want someone who will go to the grocery with me or will watch TV with me on the weekends or will lay in bed with me and just whatever. 
it's so great when you find someone that's willing to do that and when it's not complicated, when it's not fucking complicated. When it's not complicated. I also think that it is an active choice. I think that it is an active choice to do these things for someone. Yes. You know, whether it's whether it's for self gratification or doing it for someone else's service to another, whatever you want to call it. But I do think that it is a choice. And I think that this this will probably steer us in another direction, but Good. we can bring it back. But I think that this idea of choice, companionship, it is sometimes, you said it, you know, relationships are hard, right? It takes work. It takes active decision-making every day to wake up and say, I'm doing this. We are doing it together. Um, but I, you know, I have to be an equal component of this, of this choice. And I think that in the gay community, at least the one that I see every day, particularly white cis men in the South is they have access to so many choices that if one choice just happens to be a little bit harder than another choice, well, then they're going to go to that other choice. Hmm. And I think that that's really fascinating to me because this uprise, I don't really know if it's uprise. I'm using that's a big term. This like um, evolution of this like dating world or hookup culture, whatever you want to call it, really, it makes me feel or it makes me think that a lot of gay men are incapable of long term mm -hmm. companionship. Because it gets so hard and they have so much access to other people via dating apps um, or just, you know, in a, in a big city, you have access to a little bit more people than in like a rural area. So it's really interesting whenever I think of the effort or the effortless or um, being in a relationship or being in something short term, what does that mean? Or, and like I said, I am kind of taking it down another rabbit hole, but you know, I, something that I've been dealing with my therapist with is this frustration that I feel with my community mm -hmm. around it's that I think that people are incapable of practicing some long-term companionship. Yes. Uh, because one, it might not be what they want um, or it's just not what's easy whenever they can just go find someone else on an app. That comes with no strings attached at that, right? That, that, can, that can give them some sort of gratification. Yeah. Hmm. There's a lot there to unpack. I mean, I... I was telling Derek before, before we got on here, you know, uh, that I was like, oh, I feel, I don't know, like 
I feel like this is going to be a sort of somber conversation for some reason. I, I feel like that the energy level in the universe today is sort of like reflective and, and sort of emotional or whatever, but I agree with you. And I think this is part of Les's problem. And it goes back to that comment I made earlier about the intergenerational stuff is that I think maybe, maybe I just don't understand enough about how young people today are working, but it is so easy in gay culture to just ditch, to just discard. And there's so much damage that has been done to our community because of this, you know, attitude of easily discarding people and their emotions and their feelings. And, and it is partially about not wanting to deal with the hard stuff. It is a daily choice, you know, something that Derek and I do now every every day, or I mean, maybe not every day, but we do it consistently. And it's similar to the to the thing you were mentioning earlier about like checking in on the contract, but it's, it's more of a daily thing. It's like, we ask each other questions about, this is literally a question we will ask each other in bed at night before we go to sleep. How did we do today? How did we do today as, as, as a unit? And, you know, or another question, you know, what what am I not giving you that you need or desire in this space? And that can be, you know, that can be everything from like, you know, I need more affection to I need space or I feel suffocated or I wish that you would vacuum the carpet, <laughs> you know, or like, or pick your underwear up off the floor or whatever, you know, I mean, it's just all this kind of stuff. And I think that the slow way that Freddie and Les came to understand those parts of who they are is part of what brings them back together at the end of the book. And I, I really feel like they're going to make it. Like, I feel like it's a, it's a conscious choice, finally, that they're going to really stick it, stick it out and make it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that uh, Greer was intentional about not making a, a less part two. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I could, I could also, I could also see them not working out, mm. but not because going back to that one seventy nine to one eighty four, yeah. not because it didn't work. Uh, but because they actually did something, it, you know, they 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 knew that they were doing something, right? Oh, how can I define this? Like they were, for lack of better terms, they labeled it, um, and they knew what they were doing. Mm. So if they didn't work out, it wasn't for lack of trying, or it wasn't for lack of understanding what this was. Because I think at the end of the book, we finally know that. They, they realize that they, they want each other in that moment in time. They're actively choosing to be with one another. Um, and so if, if it weren't to work out, 
I don't think it would be this catastrophic, you know, incident. Yeah, I don't, I, I, I agree. I don't think it would be catastrophic. Um, but I think that it sets up this It does set up what what we've been talking about in terms of relationships can last a very long time and they are based on a particular way that you need a person in that moment in time. And, you know, we haven't, one character we haven't talked about yet is Robert and the relationship that Robert has with less right which is i don't know if do we ever know like how long they were together in a relationship like i i don't recall no but i would say a while yeah i would say a while too and you know obviously several years because you know there's this whole trajectory of robert leaving his wife him getting together with less the mm-hmm. awkwardness around potentially having to be with the wife in, mm-hmm. in Mexico city, which mm-hmm. uh, was like a really funny part of the book to me when he was really stressed out about having to confront her knowing that he stole and uh, stole her, her husband. Um, if you want to use that language as if, mm-hmm. as if someone's property, I mean, I don't, yes. I don't, I don't right. like that language, but yep. um, where was I going with this? I was just trying to think about, Oh, even though Robert and Les split at some point, they, Robert, or Les is still in Robert's life at the end when Robert has Mm -hmm. a stroke. Right, right. And Marion, who is the wife, is (laughs) so sweet. Like it's so kind and just, well, I mean, you know, for the limited interaction, but like, she's a doll. Um, No, no, no bitterness, no witchiness. Um, So much so that like, and Marion knows about Les and Les and Freddie. And so I thought, um, I think that 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 relationship also, I, I think that the the three of them is also a really interesting development for Les. I think that Robert and Les's relationship was very defining for Les. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, I think, one of his important relationships, one of the only ones that he really talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, and Robert was a good, uh, a good age older than him, uh, which is going back to this age conversation. Yeah. Um, and was also very career focused. So I think that um, it, w- it was nice to know about that relationship as he tries to navigate him and Freddie's relationship. And I think that there were some lessons that were learned. I I think that Les learned some lessons from Robert as Robert was suffering, you know, and sick, you know, during the phone call and, 
you know, even I think there was a point in time where he was like, Robert said, do you love him? Oh, God, I know. I know. And Les didn't say anything, which was an answer. And Robert was like, oh, dear boy, how much do you love him or something like that? Oh, I know. Yeah. And so in, in some way, I'm like, you know, Robert played such a big role in just being someone that Les had been with and that had shared life with and that had trusted, you know, it was seemingly a really good relationship mm-hmm. to kind of reflect with him, to be like, love, do you love him? How much? So I think I, I, I enjoyed reading that, that scene. That's really good observation. I'm glad you brought that up, even though it wasn't in our notes, because it, um, yeah, there's also this, this thing about kind of like mentorship across, you you know, across relationships. I mean, if you want to call it mentorship or, you know, whatever, it's sort of like Robert is saying to him, the way I read it was Robert was saying to him, you know, I loved you that way once and I went after you. You should do the same thing for Freddie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you shouldn't be afraid of it and you shouldn't be ashamed of it. You should just do what you need to do in order to bring that love back into your life. Because otherwise you're just miserable. I mean, that is the whole point is that less is miserable, even, you know, it, it miserable to the point where he also can't really even write a book that is going, you know, he's an author, he's a writer. He has this incredible novel that he puts out Calypso. It's well-received. He wins this award in Italy, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, but his book Swift gets rejected by the publisher because they're like, this is just a totally sad, unimportant, you know, story about a, a middle-aged white man, <laughs> uh, you know, traveling through his city and like trying to live his life. And, and I thought, uh, it's, you know, this, this gets into, we've been very serious in this conversation, but, it, but it gets into the, the topic of the way that this book is actually written. This is not a somber, no, uh, super serious, super heavy book, even though we've been talking quite literally about some very big, important themes related to queer life and, and queer relationships. The right. book is funny. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think it's actually, um, if I'm not mistaken, a young adult. Oh, no, maybe not just a fiction book. I thought it was like a young adult Mm. fiction book or novel or something like that. Yeah. I mean, it is a, I mean, it's, it's, yes, it is not somber. It is, I would say yes, emotional, but on a very light level. um, And it has great comic relief um, in it. That is, is fun to read. And I think if anyone reads it, they're going to see that. And as they close the book and they reflect more, I think that they can expand upon 
you know, these relationships and what that means mm -hmm. um, for, for themselves. You know, something that you, you brought up that I did write the quote about was whenever Les is in Paris, I want to say, um, he's at this bar and Alexander has not gone to the bar. So he's at the bar by himself, but he sees someone that has read his, his, his books. And I, I don't know what her name is, but she says, basically you're a bad gay. She's like, That's I want to tell quotes. you, yeah, yeah I, she is it's mentioning Finley. Finley. I, I don't want to gender Finley. I forgot who they are. Um, but Finley is like, I want to give you some feedback about your work. Like, it's not because you're, you know, your writing is bad. It's because you're a bad gay. And Les is like, what? And I think that that is, that is, that is funny to me. I mean, so many, how many times do I say in my everyday life that I'm a bad gay? Do you like, really? Yeah, or like my gay card is being remoked, revoked or anything like that. Or like someone's a bad gay if they don't know a gay reference or a gay cultural reference or something like that. How many times do I hear that? Um, so that was really funny to me. But it was interesting to see that level of candidness between Finley and Les around, you need to stop writing about this because it just, it comes across this certain way. And I think that was a cool part of the book that resonated with his writing, his career, and not, it didn't have much to do with his relationships. Yeah, it, it you know, I think it's also, I don't know if it's Finley, but it, at the Italian uh, award ceremony, whoever gets up to sort of start the evening award ceremony, right? Uh, says something about, you know, I really hope tonight that we don't reward the assimilationist writers who belittle the gay community and try to make us fit in with the heterosexual lifestyle. And he's, of course, referring to Les's book Calypso, which is a kind of retelling of the tale of Odysseus going back to his wife. And, and Les gets up and leaves, right? Because he's like, oh, well, if he's really ripping my shit, then I'm not going to win this award. And of course he does, and he's not there to, to receive the award, which is embarrassing and, and funny. But, um, you know, this, this I, I, I like this theme of trying to explore what it means to be like a good gay person. And even what it means to be a good writer or a good, you know, this is a, this is a kind of, you know, other part of the book that I found compelling for myself is that all, all of the people in this book kind of struggle with their own, you know, what it means to be good at their job, what it means mm -hmm. to be good at being a gay person, what it means to be good, to be in a relationship. Um, Robert, you know, when he's with Robert, he talks, there's this long paragraph where he talks about 
you know, part of being with a writer and a poet is that you have to live in this, you have to live with a person who's in a constant state of doubt about their abilities, about whether what they're doing is good. And um, I just, the reason I really like that theme is because there's not a right way to be a gay person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. There are many, many possibilities for gayness in our society. And the same way that there are many possibilities for how your relationships will unfold, many possibilities for how your career is going to progress, many possibilities for many things. And I think that the book just does a nice job of saying like, you know, don't fall into this kind of petty trope, tropism around this is the only thing that makes you a good gay person is if like if you're a gay writer you have to be able to write novels that only deal with gay people Mm -hmm. and I think it's Greer kind of like also analyzing his own career yeah that would make sense you know yeah I appreciate that and I and I think I take that lesson on many levels right you say there's no there's no right way to be a gay person, you know, you kind of just are. I also think, you know, speaking to some of your examples that you said, there's no right way of maybe being in a relationship. Um, you know, or there's no right way, which I would argue people would probably absolutely say there is a right way of writing, you know, um, to be published or to be considered a novel or to write about different experiences or anything like that. I feel like some people would probably say that even though I'm like, fuck it all up, blow it all up and write what you want to write. But I do appreciate that sentiment of if we live in this space where there are many, many possibilities of doing something. um, I mean, how liberating is that? Um, to be able to forge your own path in that way. If we wanna get into our uh, student development theory, our dear friend Baxter Magolda right, wrote a whole book around self-authorship. So, th- so that's, I mean, that's kind of where I'm taking it now. I also really appreciate that this book one, um, I, I, it has nothing to do with maybe what we were all talking, what we were talking about. Just no, now. just let it go. But it was a, you know, national bestseller and winner of a Pulitzer Prize. You know, and when my friend Rachel gave it to me, I was like, oh, okay, well, maybe because of this like gold little sticker here, <laughs> exactly. means that it's something. And so I read it and I'm like, oh, wow, like I enjoyed this. I, you know, I, I don't know what the standard of a Pulitzer Prize is, but hey, I, I enjoyed it. Well, a Pulitzer is actually one of the top literary awards. So, you know, I had picked this book up many years ago at Brazo's bookstore in Houston when when we were allowed to go to bookstores for real um, and not shop online. But, 
you know, it's, I, I buy lots and lots and lots of books. Um, and like you, where you were commenting at the beginning that you have lots of books at your house that you haven't read, that's the same at my house. You know, I mean, there's just probably thousands of books in this house that I haven't read. And, um, but it, that's a good practice actually, is to buy things that you aren't going to, not that you're not going to read, but to buy things that you're interested in reading and keep them around because when the time is right, it will speak to you. So anyway, when you mentioned that you were, you wanted to read this book, I was like, oh good, I'm finally going to kind of get to that book. And I think that this is like a sort of moment of self-reflection. I really have uh, stayed away from queer literature in my reading life, to be quite honest. Like I find reading queer literature to be very hard because mm. I find so much of queer literature to be trite and written in this, you know, kind of way that doesn't fit with my own personal expectations or experiences as a queer person. Um, so I just have a really hard time when someone's like, oh, this is the great gay American novel, or this is the great queer novel or whatever the case is. And I'm like, it's probably not, um, you know, and it's probably going to irritate me and I'm probably going to have a really hard time with it because, because the type of queer person that I am or that I've grown into is just like, you know, I'm just like a book nerd. I just want to stay at home and drink coffee and, you know, just that kind of thing. I mean, I was different when I was younger, of course, but, but now that's just who I am. So again, like this book for me was just, it was nice because I felt like I, I finally saw a gay character that I resonated with on like a very personal level in terms of his own struggles, his own doubt, his own irritation with figuring out where he's going in his life. And that is just like, that is smack in the middle of where I am right now in my own personal life. I just, not so much with my relationship, but like with my career and, and just like with trying to figure out how to navigate this new age that I live in, both in terms of physical age and in terms of I just, I have no sense of what the world is going to be like going forward. And it's a, it's a wildly weird time to be alive, man. Yes. Yes. And I can understand how, who's, as someone who values understanding that on such a deep level, it is. It is quite uh, scary to be in this place of not knowing or at least trying to figure it out. So I, um, yeah, I, you know, I'm glad that I, I, I remember emailing you and I was like, I have a lot of books that I've read. What do you, I had a hard time even thinking of like, 
what do I want to talk about on a podcast? Wow. Um, and having you kind of narrow down some of those that I gave you was really helpful. Mm-hmm. And I think less just stuck out to me. Um, and I think that it's just a sign, you know, I'm glad that I chose the book. I'm glad that you read it and enjoyed it on that level. Um, and I hope that anyone who listens to this, no matter their identity, specifically around age and sexual orientation, can, can maybe see something in this book that draws them to it. Because mm-hmm. I think the lessons in this book are far more reaching than just to a, a, a gay man. Mm-hmm. No, I agree with you. And I also think that, you know, again, to not make it be always so somber and serious, it, it was just like, it's just like a fun read. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's not complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, the writing style in the book is really interesting there's this question throughout the whole book. Oh, I wanted to ask you that. Did you know who the narrator was? I guessed about midway through. Okay, so you I had guess. some sense. Not, uh, um, I did not know at the beginning. I thought I never, oh, starting a book is always so strange for me because my mind just goes in a thousand different places. But towards the, yeah, towards the end, I kind of guessed. And then whenever it was confirmed to me, I was like, oh, this makes a lot more sense. Yeah. I just, I did not know. And I don't know why I couldn't figure it out. And then like, when you get to that last, I guess it's maybe only the last four or five pages where the narrator really gets revealed. And, and then I'm like, oh, it makes total sense. It's a it's a really smart way of writing. I'm, I'm consistently amazed when I read all these different books and I talk to people about the gifts that writers have to be able to put together such a complicated, I just think I can barely write a complete sentence anymore. Like I don't have any ability to write. Um, I can't write academically anymore. I can't do anything. So when I read these books, I'm like, how did these people do this? I'm just amazed. Yep. Yep. I thought, I also thought it was pretty smart because it makes you, or it made me go back to the beginning of the book and be like, Mm -hmm. wow. So this is, he was writing it at this point. Like, it was just really fascinating. It's kind of like, um, Game of Thrones. Have you, do you watch Game of Thrones? No, I've never seen it. Okay. Well, I mean, don't feel like you have to, but I watched all of Game of Thrones and then the things that you learn through Game of Thrones, if you start it again, you see them pop up quicker Mm -hmm. and you, a lot of, a lot of puzzle pieces make a lot more sense. And I'm like, now that is smart. Like to be able to do all of this, create this brilliant show or book and then have the person go and start it again and be like, this makes so much more sense. I think that is just brilliant. People have said a lot about Game of Thrones. You know, for a long time, I was not into watching TV. I think you know this about me. I, in fact, 
you know, for most of my adult life, I did not have a TV in my house. And, and then uh, when Derek and I got together, Derek uh, is very much a TV watcher. And um, one of the, one of the fun things that has happened this summer has been, we've just been binge watching a lot of like series, like, you know, and I, I really have a new appreciation for TV writers, particularly for series that go on for like years and years or seasons and seasons, um, because we've watched, you know, we've watched some pretty intriguing series and not Game of Thrones, but um you really it's it's talent man it's it's just i don't know how these people do it um and how they they keep it together without screwing something up um and just how you can feel so connected that you know good writing makes you feel connected good television or movies make you feel so connected Uh um darn it what was the series that we watched that I don't know like well we just we just recently finished watching like the entire series of Madam Secretary we kind of like watched it over like four four weeks um and I feel like this hole in my life like not not sitting down nightly and watching them right like I'm like oh these people were so important to my life for a month and 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 I felt like they were really in my life and now they're not there and I feel like Mm -hmm. this sense of loss um same with a good book you know it's like I this past weekend this is I spent time with Les and Freddie and then when I put it down I was like Or tomorrow I'm going to be recording another session with um, my friend Farang. And his book is The Giver. I don't know if you've ever read that book. but I think I might actually have it. Maybe not. Well, I I didn't sleep well last night because I finished that book yesterday. And it's, it's a very troubling book and it's very emotionally. And... I was having terrible dreams last night about like the stuff that happens in the book. <clears throat> so the book will fuck you up. Man. I'm like, I, mean, I don't and, know if I'm going to recover. <laughs> yeah. And books do that there. I mean, there are some books like, you know, Gone Girl. I, I mean, just some people who read Gone Girl, they're probably like, this is a basic ass book. But for me, that book changed my life. I was like, right. oh, shit. Um, yeah, I, and I think that there's some, there's some good books out there. And I, I, I can appreciate um, some good writing. I can also appreciate really shitty writing if it just keeps me engaged. You know, just keep me engaged. Talk about some fun things. And I'll stick, I'll stick through it with you. Because to me sometimes reading what I've learned is that I don't read books to analyze the grammar or the writing style or to analyze the book in a way that 
you know, needs to go on a review online or something. Mm -hmm. I think I read books for the process of reading, Mm -hmm. you know, just to like, like I said, escape reality for a little bit. Mm. So like 50 Shades of Grey, awful books, but I loved them. Mm -hmm. Like just reading about the absurdity in these books was fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. And I read them in like a month, all three books. And so, which is pretty quick for me. And so I just, I just love reading. Um, And I think I have this same sense of longing or anxiety whenever I get to an end of a series or um, book. Like I'm reading currently uh, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoos. It's a trilogy. Yes, I know about them. I've never been able to get into that. Um, Have you ever watched the movie Mm -mm. Girl with the Dragon Tattoo? Okay, so I watched the movie first and it was a pretty badass movie. And I was like, okay, I need to to read the book now. And I mean, the book is just as vivid and gory it's beautiful but they get longer and bigger as they as they go on um and i'm on the third book of the trilogy but it's like taking me forever because i know that it's gonna like end you know and i kind of don't want it to oh yeah that's interesting um hmm i think some this is why I like the podcast because like, you know, everyone, like when you were saying, you know, sometimes I like to read just stuff that's not great writing, but it just like helps you get lost in, or, you know, escape from reality, which is totally one of the reasons why people should read books. Um, and and it, it's interesting to hear people talk about, you know, what moves them sometimes. And like these series books that you're talking about, like you reading slow because you don't want it to end. I would probably have the opposite. Like whenever I've read series of books, I, I'm always just so curious about what's going to happen that I try to read them as fast as possible because I want to know, like I'm, mm-hmm. I'm curious. Mm-hmm. Um, and series books are just like a whole other thing. I mean, I don't know how, I, you know, this is just one book and it's 300 pages, right? 284 yeah. pages, something like that. I don't know how people write some of these books like those, those Stieg, pages. right. Those Stieg Larson books are like, they're really long and I just could never get into them. I just couldn't get into it. I don't know what is preventing you or what that road blockage is, but if it is ever lifted, get into it. Well, the thing is, is that, you know, sometimes this is another thing I've learned about reading over the course of my adult life or maybe my whole life. Uh, and, and this is why I say buy books and have them in your house, even if you don't intend to read them right away, because sometimes it's not, it's not the right time for a book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'll pick a book up and I'll be like, I just, I, you know, this is not clicking. It's not, it's not moving for me. It's not whatever. And other times there will be a book that will be sitting on the shelf for years and then, and I won't read it. And then one day I'll just be like, Oh, now's the time. Yeah. It's time for me to read it and I'll yeah. pick it up and I'll just get through it. And so, you know, I still, do I still have the Steve Larson book somewhere around here? 
you wouldn't even believe my house, man. I mean, I've got, I've got like so many stacks of books, like bookshelves everywhere. Just so many books in this house. It's why I don't. When you move said thousands of books, I was like, he is not lying. Probably. No, I'm really not lying. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you feel compelled or moved to want to talk about in the end of our time together? You know, I don't think I'm compelled to continue talking about less, although I would recommend it for anyone who just is looking for a book to read. I, I would say that I appreciate this opportunity to think about reading and books um, in, a, in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that your podcast um, does that really, really well. And so I appreciate the opportunity of coming and chatting about a book. And it's always nice to see you. It's wonderful to see you too. And it's been a long time. I mean, I hear about what's going on with you from time to time from Leo. He'll tell me, you know, stuff that's happening or that he talked to you. I should be better about keeping in touch. But one of the things I've grown into, no, I mean, I say that, but but then I'm going to make this caveat, which is, you know, one of the things that I've just grown into understanding about myself is that I'm just bad at keeping in touch with people. I just, Mm -hmm. it's not because I don't like them or that I don't care about them or whatever. It's just that like, I just suck at that crap. I've sucked at it my whole adult life. Same. Absolutely. (laughs) So hopefully you don't feel bad about that. (laughs) No, no. Cause I'm the same way. Yeah. I am the same way. No. Well, I've, I've enjoyed the convo. I'm going to um, stop the recording and uh, I really thank you for uh, being on the podcast. Yes. Thank you. Um, if there's anything that I need to do after, let me know. Um, I say that as I remember that I gave you two names. Did you have Chelsea on at all? No, and I, I have her email, so I'll, I'll reach out to her once your episode okay. is published um, and see. I'm sure she'll want to do it, but um, maybe, maybe not. Some people say no because um, they're afraid of having their voices recorded or whatever, but we, we know Chelsea. I don't think she'll be nervous about that. Yeah, and um, then I'll send you an email for my friend Rachel. Okay, just in case Chelsea says no. And the only other thing I need from you is... I will need a photo at some point. Um, It'll be a few weeks before I get this edited and posted, but I also make an Instagram story with each uh, episode release and I include a picture and a quote that you say in the the episode as part of the uh, promotional material. So whenever you have time, find a picture for me and just email it to me and I'll be able to uh, use it. All right, will do.